Do the kinds of miracles that happen in the Bible still happen today? This is the Deep Questions Podcast, and I'm your host, Chase Thompson, a pastor and writer in Salinas, California. So we're talking miracles today, and I can't wait to dive in with our guest, Dr. Craig Keener. Before we cast off, though, I do want to mention our website, which is www.deepquestionspod.com. That's deepquestionspod.com, and I want to encourage you to go there if you have a question for us to cover on the show, or a comment, or especially if you're a skeptic, critic, or atheist, and you want to leave a snarky comment We love skeptics, critics, and atheists around here. Every episode of the show has a blog post with links, notes, and a transcript, so do be sure and check out our website. It helps us when you subscribe to the show, leave a review, and tell a friend, so we would appreciate you sharing the show. Our guest today is Dr. Craig S. Keener, and to say that Dr. Keener is a prolific author is quite an understatement. He's written dozens of books, and several of them are over a thousand pages long, Literally. So I am overjoyed to welcome Dr. Craig S. Keener to our first episode. Dr. Keener is a prominent New Testament scholar, a prolific author, having written over 30 books. I think the exact number is 34, most of which are thick and substantial enough to destroy a car if dropped from a building. Uh, I first picked up one of Dr. Keener's books almost 30 years ago. I believe it came out in 93. I got it in 1995 when I was at seminary in Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. It was the IVP Bible background commentary on the New Testament, and it's a fantastic resource that I have used uh, multiple times. There is a newer version of that out now, the 2014 edition. Dr. Keener is the F.M. and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, which is right as we speak in the path of a vicious ice storm. So, I hope the ice doesn't knock us offline today, Dr. Keener. So far, so good, right? No ice on the roads yet. Right. Yeah, if the power goes out, we've got, I have a laptop we can switch to. Uh, Hopefully, we'll make it through at least for a little while. So I've already introduced you earlier in the podcast in terms of your books and your academic career. What would you say, Dr. Keener, defines you beyond that? What do you want people to know about you that goes beyond academia? Jesus. Yeah, I, I was an atheist before my conversion, and the Lord graciously revealed himself to me and converted me. And I'll be eternally, literally eternally grateful to him for that, because I wasn't in a setting. I mean, I I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wasn't in a setting where I would have come to that on my own. I guess that's what defines me. That's that's a great answer. And I I will say academics, seminary might have a a reputation for being dry and dusty. That was not my experience with seminary. Most of my professors were genuine, God-hearted, in love with Jesus people. Uh, So my experience with seminary, I didn't didn't go through and come out thinking, oh my gosh, that was such a tedious chore. It was a good time. And Reading your works, Dr. Keener, and uh, having just recently listened to Miracles Today on Audible, I, I totally get that. It's it's not dry and dusty academics with you. Uh, your love for Jesus and his work really uh, kind of leaps off the page, and I appreciate that. I understand you have a upcoming podcast on the Bible backgrounds with Dr. Kurt Jaros. Can you tell us just briefly about that? Is it is it available yet? Is it uh, is it in the iTunes store, Apple Podcast Store yet? No, I don't think it's I don't think it's out yet. 
Um, yeah, uh, Dr. Kurt Jaros interviewed me at some length. We, we did a number of, of podcasts. They haven't started releasing yet. Basically, he's asking me questions, and I'm just answering them. And also, um, it's open, especially for the next season. He got some questions beforehand from other people, but uh, especially for the next season, people send in questions, and he'll give me the questions. And if I know the answers, I'll answer them. If I if I don't, well, hopefully he won't record those. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to that podcast. I, when I first saw that on your YouTube channel, I thought that is a fantastic idea for a podcast. I will absolutely devour that. So I am a Logos user. I, I probably own 10, 12 or so of your books. Uh, one I don't know own yet, but I plan on it. It's on my goals list is your four volume commentary on the book of Acts. According to Logos, it is, uh, it's a 4,000 I want to say they say it's like 4,600 pages long. It's, it's about 4,500. 4, it's, it's like 4,450 or something like I, that. That absolutely blows me away. I'm a writer, uh, not like you, no, nowhere near as prolific. Uh, I think my longest book is, oh, it's it's just under 300 pages. To, the, to imagine writing a 4,000-page book, it just blows my mind. So uh, how long did it take to write your commentary on Acts? And uh, if I could ask for the writers out there, what's your writing routine? Yeah, I think I had brain damage when I was done with that. <laughs> My wife and the Lord helped me because it was it was intense. And I thank God for my patient students who put up with what I was during those years. But anyway, I mean, I of course, I'd been doing research all along since maybe 1980. When I was actually an undergrad in 1980, but I was starting to you know, keep track of my of my research. But I started actually writing the book around the year 2000. And well, the last volume came out in what, 2015. <laughs> so uh, it was, I mean, the indexing of it took me something like 14 months. So um, it was 60 hour weeks. I do observe a Sabbath, but that means, you know, it was 10 hours a day, most of the rest of the week. Um, not including my teaching. And uh, happily, I lived on campus during the time of the writing. So my commute was, you know, like two minutes. That that helped. Uh, but then also, you know, you, you talk with talk with students outside class. And so on. when you when you live right on campus, you're very accessible. But uh, it was it was hard in the brain. Um, yeah, basically, it was pretty much, I guess, 10 hours a day is a good way to describe it. I mean, some days it may have been a little bit less. Some days it was a lot more. I, I didn't mean to do that, though. I mean, I thought it would take me two years. And every two years when I'd come up for air, it's like, okay, maybe two more years. And, you know, if I'd known, I don't think I would have started it. And then said I'd never do that again. And then I was asked to write the ICC volume one, Mark, which I'm working on now. And this one is also intense. However, Mark is only half as long as Acts. <laughs> so I have much more hope this time. So we can expect maybe 2,000 pages out of that one. Well, I don't know how many pages it'll be, but I'm trying to be as concise as I can. But you have to inter interact with other scholarship. And, and you know, I cited like over 10,000 uh, works of secondary scholarship in my in my Acts commentary, the big, the big one, not the, I, I did a shorter 
700 page one for, for Cambridge where I had to cut like 90% of my, <laughs> of my work to just get it down to the summary version. But, you know, even with that, I mean, I keep running into people, oh, you didn't cite me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I meant to cite everybody, but I think I only got like half of what was available out there. But the, I think the real strength of it is, is what I did with the primary sources, with ancient historiography and, and so on. Well, well, God has obviously given you a writing gift. And sometimes when I'm writing, I'm very streaky and, and, and intense and, and almost get into kind of a manic state where... Uh, I don't know, the words just flow. And, and if you are writing 10 hours a day for years at a time, uh, that's just, uh, it's it's wonderful. And, and I, I absolutely uh, at least understand at least a, a small portion of what you're talking about, about the brain drain at the end of uh, a work like that. So uh, when is your uh, ICC commentary on Mark coming out? I did not know you were working on that. I don't have any way to predict it because I am only like, about halfway through the rough draft, and after my rough draft, it'll probably take me a couple of years to go back and fix it up into something um, readable. <laughs> um, so there's there's still a, a long way to go. But I think the um, the previous edition, the one that I'm replacing, came out in 1896 or 1897. So you know it'll it'll be out. Considering how long it's been since the last edition. It'll be two years. Those ICC commentaries are intense. So I, I, imagine, I, can, I can only barely imagine the, the work you're putting into that. May the Lord bless that project. Well, speaking of books, our, our main discussion today is on miracles and, and your book, Miracles Today. But I just recently learned that in 2019, you authored a book with Dr. Michael Brown called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. So I've actually had the privilege of meeting Dr. Brown a couple of times. Once when he was uh, at the Brownsville Revival in the 90s, and then one good bit after that when he was leading the fire school of ministry. He didn't know me from Adam. I was a youth pastor the first time I met him. And he made time for me and actually a couple of other youth pastors. And I, I was just blown away by his graciousness, by his openness, by his genuineness, just such a good guy for somebody that, you know, is quite prominent. So, so I guess my question is, uh, what was it like writing with Dr. Brown? And uh, considering you wrote a book that really pushes back on the, I would say the primary evangelical viewpoint of the rapture is sort of the pre-trib left behind perspective, which I also don't agree with. Uh, but what was it like writing a book with Dr. Brown and how much pushback have you had from other Christians on the stance you took. Michael and I have been friends for a long time because we're both charismatic um, and charismatic scholars. Well, back when we became friends, there weren't a whole lot of <laughs> charismatic scholars outside of the Pentecostal you know, Bible schools and so on. So, um, you know, we had that in common and I, and I visited him. He invited me to visit him at the Brownsville Revival. So we, we got to know each other fairly well. And then, uh, We've kept in, we keep in touch regularly. So the publisher asked, is there anything on your heart that you would like to write a, a book about uh, together? And, and um, well, there were some other things, but they would take a lot of time and we didn't have a whole lot of time. So we took the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> uh, and that was, you know, because I, I went to a, well, my undergraduate institution was pre-tribulation. And so I got a lot of flack for that. But I figure, you know, if you're, if you're thinking you're not going to escape the Great Tribulation, you can handle a little bit of flack, right? Sure. So we uh, 
we, we had both come to the same conclusion. I mean, we've both been taught pre-tribulationalism as young Christians, and both of us reading the Bible inductively realized that all the verses used in support of it were out of context. And so we left behind the left behind view. Uh, of course, we have a lot of good friends who still hold that. We tried to be gracious. We got, we got a little bit of pushback, but I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> considering the kind of pushback we could have gotten, it wasn't really too harsh. I mean, there was, uh, one of the funniest was somebody who, who wrote on Amazon, as soon as the book came out, uh, you know, hand the book before he, before he possibly could have read it. Uh, but one of the other, other funny ones, but we got a lot of happy reviews too, but one of the, uh, <laughs> the, the, probably the most funny was like, uh, this is, this is falsehood. Uh, don't read this book. I have never read this book. <laughs> it's like, uh, wait a minute, you haven't read it. How do you know? <laughs> So that was that was funny, and and actually Michael pushed back on that one, and the guy said, "All right, you're wrong. I retract." So that was nice. I never fail to be surprised at how many closed-minded people there are in Christendom. I guess just to the whole world, and we'll talk about skeptics in a minute. But people, once they solidify their views, it's like it's concrete, and not even the Bible can change their mind. And uh, that's that's a little bit of a scary place to be in, where your dogma is elevated above uh, what the Word of God says. Uh, let's kind of shift to our our discussion of miracles. I'm going to ask you if you personally have experienced a miracle. I, before I do that, let me briefly share a possible miracle with you and see if you can tell me if you think that is a miracle. Obviously, there's no way for you to think you know know whether it's true or not. I'll just tell you that I'm I'm telling the truth uh, as best as I remember it. So I am. Uh, I am a Southern Baptist pastor in Salinas, California, uh, but I grew up in Alabama, lived in Alabama in the South uh, all my life until just about four years ago when I moved out here to pastor a church in Salinas. When I was in Alabama, I was the pastor of Agape Baptist Church, which is in a community called Pinson, just outside of Birmingham. It was a Southern Baptist church, and our uh, our theme there was uh, something that I called Everybody Plays Ball, which uh, essentially meant Everybody has a spiritual gift, and we want to be a church where everybody uses their spiritual gift, not a pastor-driven church, but, a, you know, a Jesus-focused, people-driven church where everybody uses their gift. And uh, so it was that a good friend of mine who, uh, I'm a continuationist, uh, I don't know that I would say I'm a full-blown charismatic, I might be uh, pretty close to that, uh, but probably very close for that to that for a Baptist. But a friend of mine who was like really, really, really charismatic, uh, he and his family started coming to the church and heard me talking about everybody using their gifts. And so one day he comes to me and says, well, I, I feel like my gift is sort of in the area of words of knowledge, of praying for people. Uh, like God reveals to me that, that somebody has this issue and I pray for them. And he said, you know, can we try doing that? And I said, well, Okay, let's give it a shot. And so on Sunday mornings for a few weeks, this guy, his name was Craig, would come up and before, uh, after worship and before the message started, we would have a time of prayer and he would say, well, I feel like there's somebody here today with, uh, I don't know, um, a liver disorder that we need to pray for or somebody that is experiencing insomnia. And, and we did that for a few minutes and, and I was slightly nervous about it. It was very charismatic, but you know, the church was fine with it. There were no issues and we were praying for people and, and God was doing things. Well, one Sunday he gets up there and uh, I was a little nervous that day. I don't remember why. Uh, you know, here I'm in the pastor. I'm holding the microphone. He's saying these things and 
He says, I feel like there's somebody here with an injury to their fifth metatarsal, which is incredibly specific. And I, my eyes kind of got big. And I remember thinking, oh, people aren't even going to know what their metatarsal is. So this is probably going to be really embarrassing. So we just stand there for uh, literally, it felt like five minutes, but it was probably 30 seconds scanning the congregation and nobody is stepping forward. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is a disaster. But then I start thinking, uh, so at the time I didn't, I always forgot the difference between the metacarpals and the metatarsals. I know one's fingers and one's feet. And so I, uh, I Googled on my phone, like kind of off to the side. I'm sure everybody saw me. And I realized your metatarsal is a bone in your foot. And it all of a sudden struck me. A, a few years before, I had broken my foot trying to show off at a um, a youth lock-in. I tried to slam dunk a basketball. I landed on another basketball, broke my foot, and uh, then actually broke it again a few years after that in a biking accident. And for the last year at the time, this was 2013, I think, for the last year, because I had broken my foot twice, I had developed a pretty severe case of plantar fasciitis to the point where every time I stood up after sitting down or every time I got up in the morning, any time I stopped walking, I would have severe pain for about the first hundred steps. And then it would work itself out and get better. And uh, so I all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, I'm the guy with a fifth metatarsal injury. And I was trying to think where the break was. And I didn't remember at the time, but I felt like he was talking about me and I was very embarrassed. And I said, well, Craig, I believe it or not, have a fifth metatarsal injury. And and I knew, like I, I told the church, I said, I know this looks like a setup. I know this looks like we just made this up or colluded outside, but he has no idea I have a foot injury. Uh, and he really didn't. He had no idea. So he prayed for me. And, and honestly, uh, as a pastor, um, usually after church, we, we go out to eat and I go home and take a nap and I'm in this fog until the next day. Well, the next day I woke up, got out of bed, was walking around, and all of a sudden it hit me. My foot hasn't hurt today. And I realized that my foot was completely healed. And honestly, that's been years ago. I, it's never hurt again in that place. And I know it's my fifth metatarsal because I still have a bone spur there. Uh, it's right. I actually checked it last night before this interview because I wanted to make sure it's right on top of my fifth metatarsal. And I, uh, I don't know that I felt a warm oil like sensation or anything like that when he prayed for me. But I will tell you, I went from daily, not daily, hourly pain to zero pain. And that's been almost 10 years. So, so what do you think? I, I don't know that I would call that a miracle. I definitely think God did something. What do you think? Would you call that a miracle? I, I would call it a divine action. Yeah. Um, the, the, the definition of miracle is, uh, we, we have to talk about the definition of miracle before we talk about um, what things are miracles, because there, there's some ambiguity about the definition. So I think normal, normal, normally people would call that a miracle. Um, but uh, one, one other thing, you were saying that you are a continuationist and almost charismatic. I mean, charisma is, is just the Greek term used for yes. gift. Uh, so spiritual gifts, anybody who, well, I guess my way of defining it would be a continuationist to somebody who believes that spiritual gifts are for today. And a charismatic is somebody who puts that into practice. So 
I think you are charismatic. So, um, but in the case of, of miracle, it's been defined different ways through history. The New Testament term that's usually translated that way just means act of power. Um, well, God creating the whole the whole universe that was an act of power. But the the terminology is is used in the Gospels and, and Acts, especially for um, what we call signs and wonders, things that get people's attention. So, in a lot of church history, they spoke of this as uh, an act of power that generates awe or gets people's attention. And in uh, in Augustine spoke about it as not being according to the usual course of nature. It's above nature. It's not against nature, but it's mm. it's above nature. Um, the way it's often defined by by theologians today, they define a difference between general divine action, the way God set the universe up to work. I mean, God is at work in everything. We we thank God for life, uh, and and even though you know I inherited my genes from my parents, and you know it goes way way back. So I mean, it's. God works through other causes uh, as well. Sometimes we have what is called special divine action. I love that definition. Where God does something that, that wouldn't, he's not just working through the secondary causes. Uh, he may work through secondary causes, but he does it in a very unusual way. So it gets our attention. And David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher in the 1700s, he defined miracles as violations of natural law, and then define natural law as that which can't be violated, and therefore define miracles out of existence, which is rather a, you know, I mean, if that's not circular reasoning, I don't know what we would call circular reasoning. But in terms of them being not part of the ordinary course of nature, we can say that's reasonable. Now, there's a continuum, I think, of things that we would because God often works through nature, like in Exodus 14, it says that he blew back the, the sea with a strong east wind. So clearly it wasn't a violation of nature. God was, God was using natural causes, but he was using them in such a way, I mean, it happens. Just, we, we know about winds set down. There is such a thing where, where wind can blow back bodies of water. But, I mean, for this to happen so that the Israelites can walk across the sea, and then when their pursuers are coming after them, it closes on them. You know, we wouldn't call that a coincidence. I mean, most of us would say, okay, that's that's pretty dramatic. If it has to be an actual violation of nature or something that would be naturally impossible, well, we've got the resurrection of Jesus. We've got the creation of the world to begin with. We've got the virgin birth. We don't have a whole lot of those, even in the Bible. I mean, God usually works through nature. So um, sometimes it's hard to say, you know, what is just God's blessing uh, and, and what is something so dramatic that it gets people's attention. Different things will tend to get different people's attention so that some people don't pay attention no matter what. I've had a couple friends who are atheists tell me that if somebody were raised from the dead in front of them, I asked them, you know, because they were like, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So if somebody were raised from the dead in front of you, would you believe it? And they said, no. <laughs> so. Um, you know, you have some people, nothing will get their attention. Oh, well, that's what they say. I, I suspect it might actually get their attention if they did see it. But I don't know. When I was an atheist, I, I wasn't one of the nice atheists. I was, I made fun of Christians. But I wasn't so closed-minded that nothing could get my attention. So anyway, there, there, you know, but 
you can say you may not be able to tell is is this dramatic? Is this dramatic? I mean, dramatic or those kind of terms are subjective because you know there's different levels of dramatic. But between a basic example of something that clearly is and a basic example of something that clearly isn't, you know, you can you can at least use, you know, here are some clear examples and here are some in between that different people will decide differently. So I often say to people, uh, what do you think? Because I think a lot of them, most people would say, yeah, that's a miracle. It's like Samson would be a good example before he got his, his bad hair day with <laughs> Delilah. Uh, Samson would be a great example of somebody with long hair. I would be a great example of somebody with short hair, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, in between we have people like, like yourself. Uh, so, so I, I think miracles happen. How people define them will vary somewhat, but I think we have enough examples that are clear that almost anybody except my you know, <laughs> friends I just mentioned would accept them. And then some others that almost all of us would be skeptical of, and then some others in between. Uh, I think most people would consider what you shared to be a miracle, especially because it was specified independently, you know, with direct information. Well, I appreciate the definition you use in your book. Uh, it's very simple, profound, a special divine action. And uh, we probably won't talk about Hume's argument too much today, but both of your volumes on miracles really take his argument down. It's, it's a complete and total takedown. And, you know, honestly, in terms of skeptical arguments against Christianity, uh, I definitely find Hume's argument one of the least potent. Uh, it's just not very well argued. As you said, it's, uh, it's very much an example of circular re reasoning, almost a tautology. And it, 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 he, the, the, the major plank of his argument is, uh, lack of reliable witnesses to miracles. And of course, uh, your book is, is, uh, literally filled with uh, the testimonies of medical doctors, people with PhDs, etc. In fact, one thing that struck me in your book was uh, 75% of medical doctors surveyed uh, in the United States uh, believe in miracles. That that tells you something. If 75% of our most educated people who work with some of our sickest people believe in miracles. what Dr. Keener, have you witnessed or experienced a miracle yourself? Well, again, it depends on how you define miracles, but yeah, <laughs> um, some some that I think most people would consider. I mean, for example, I after my conversion, I was helping out in a nursing home Bible study, and I was an undergraduate at the time, but the Bible study leader was a fuller seminarian at the time, and I don't recommend to my seminary students that they do things like this. You really have to be sure that God is in it, but um, there was a... Uh, an older woman there who came to the nursing home Bible study, her name was Barbara, and she would always be wheeled in on her wheelchair. And every week she would say, I wish I could walk. I wish I could walk. And one day the Bible study leader said, I'm tired of this. And he got up out of his, out of his chair and walked over to her and took her by the hand. And I'm like, Oh no, Don, what are you doing? And I, I was like, uh, you know, I, I wasn't an atheist anymore, but you know, I, I, I think I still had enough of my skeptical background. You know, okay, well, I, no, God can work in our hearts, but you know, oh no, don't, don't, 
don't try to pick her up. She's going to fall. Um, he grabbed her by the hand, said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I walked her around the room. She looked as horrified as I felt. I mean, she wasn't expecting this. So this wasn't like psychosomatic or something. Um, he walked around the room and, you know, you could tell by her expression, she was like, what in the world just happened to me? And from then on, she would walk to the Bible study and she would say, I love this Bible study. I love this Bible study. So that this isn't something I saw, you know, like a burst of adrenaline, you know, in a public meeting where somebody's trying to get an attention for themselves or something. This was like, she actually could walk after that. And then another another case would be when we were, uh, it, it was when I was a fairly new professor. I still considered myself a retired doctoral student. <laughs> and uh, I was teaching at a, an African-American seminary in North Carolina at the time. And we were attached to a, a college. And, the, and so I was helping with the undergrad campus ministry as well. And some students from a nearby HBCU, uh, another college in the area, had, had come by to help us uh, with this outreach that we planned for this one day. But it was just pouring down rain. Like, actually, it is outside here right now. Um, but it's but, uh, supposed to be snow soon, but it was just pouring down rain. It was supposed to be pouring down rain all day long so that other things were in the process of being canceled because of the rain. Well, one of the a sophomore biology major from the other college said, well, let's just pray for the rain to stop. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, whatever. Can't hurt. <laughs> and, she, and she led us in prayer. And... The rain stopped, and after a few minutes, the sun came out and was out the rest of the day. So you can say, well, it's a coincidence. But, <laughs> I mean, it happened right right after when she prayed. It was clearly contrary to what everybody else was expecting to happen, naturally speaking. Um, and with, with uh, the woman in the nursing home, you can say, well, she was just psychosomatically disabled. Well... If she was psychosomatically disabled and was cured psychosomatically, it was fortuitous because, I mean, she could have just fallen down. If, I mean, how did Don know that this was going to happen? Uh, so, I mean, there are things like that that I've witnessed and experienced. Um, back when I was a young Christian, and I often would pray in the woods because back in those days, I liked it to pray loudly. Mm. Um, so I'd go pray in the woods so I wouldn't disturb people. And my arms would get plastered with mosquito bites. Probably shouldn't have been praying so close to the creek. But anyway, my arms were plastered with mosquito bites. And uh, and so I would just, I didn't, you know, I wanted to not be distracted. So I would just pray that they would go away. And half an hour later, I'd remember and look and they'd all be gone. You know, so things like that would, you know, I've seen plenty of things like that. Uh, it definitely falls under the category of special divine action. You you mentioned psychosomatic healings. Uh, I, I don't think anybody could believe that that's a, a big part of the Christian miracle testimonies after even a cursory reading of either one of your books on miracles, uh, because you have so many stories in there 
of babies uh, being healed, not only being healed, coming back from the dead, and people in comas, and there's no psychosomatic element that's even possible with a baby or somebody in a coma. So uh, we're going to move into some of our deep questions, and they're all pretty much based around Dr. Keener's newest book that has recently been released. It's called Miracles Today, The Supernatural Work of God in the Modern World. I have been uh, over the, the the first part of this year, I've been listening to that book. I got it on Audible. And, and I got to tell you this, and, and I'm not just saying this because Dr. Keener's here. I've already recommended it to several people. It, this is one of the best Christian books I've ever listened to. It, it's fantastic. I am not, uh, I mean, I, I might tear up in a movie or something like that. But generally speaking, I'm not just an easy crier. There has been three instances listening to this book that I'm not quite finished with to, as an honest confession. There have been three instances listening to this book that I have just broken down crying. And if you think, oh, well, it's an emotional book, it's, it's, it's a scholarly book. It, it's a very scholarly book, but there's so many testimonies in the book of miracles that are not sketchy, but incredibly well attested. And y- you can't help but read this book or listen to this book and not just be moved to your core. So if you've not gotten a hold of Dr. Keener's book, you should pause the podcast right now, go to Amazon, go to wherever you get your books, go to Audible and get it. It's again, Miracles Today, Dr. Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, The Supernatural Work of God in the Modern World. And I got to say this about the book, two volume book on miracles, 1100 to 1200 pages. And then of course this book, which is more like uh, around 300 pages. The They are astounding in just the sheer volume of the number of miracles. Now, the, the books are not completely wall-to-wall miracles. There's a lot of theological, scholarly discussion, uh, interaction with skeptics, but there's so many, so many miracle stories in the books. It's honestly, I would use the word relentless to describe them in the sense if you're a skeptic listening to these books or reading these books, you're just going to be overwhelmed by the the volume of them. So let's talk about a couple of those stories, if we could. Can you share maybe a couple or three stories with us? And I'll specifically ask you to start with the one uh, about your wife's sister. I I think she would be, it would be a French name, so Therese. All right, so let's hear about Therese. Uh, Therese was in Congo. Yeah, this one, uh, there's no medical documents for this one because there was no medical help available in the village, which is why they probably needed a miracle. Well, I don't know, maybe they would have needed one anyway, but I had heard this from my wife, you know, so it was something she heard growing up, but uh, she didn't know all the details about it. And so I was able to interview my mother-in-law about it when I was visiting Congo. And um, my wife is from Congo. I should just fill in that back <laughs> backstory. But my, my mother-in-law's name was Antoinette Malambe. And when Therese, her eldest daughter, was about two years old. She cried out that she was bitten by a snake. Her mother got to her, found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village. So she strapped the child to her back and ran to a nearby village where a family friend, Coco Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. Coco Moise prayed for Therese. Therese started breathing again, and the next day she was fine. And today she has a master's degree. She just recently retired. So I asked, how long was it that she wasn't breathing? And again, this is as far as anybody could tell. They didn't have you know, medical instruments and so on. But they, you know, they live a lot closer to death than we do in, 
in our society. They know the signs of death better than we do. She had to stop and think, uh, well, from this village to that village, this hill, that hill. She said about three hours. Now, six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. Now, this isn't the most dramatic resuscitation account that I have by any by any means. I mean, there's others that are like eight hours and so on. There's others that are medically documented uh, that are like over an hour and, and so on. Uh, but this one really got my attention because it was my sister-in-law. <laughs> and, and, and she has no brain damage, obviously. So when I, when I went into this, I, I did go into it as a Christian, you know, by this point. Uh, but when I went into the research, I was like going into it because I'm dealing, you know, as I'm writing commentaries, I'm dealing with people saying, well, these things historically aren't reliable because look how many miracles they recount and you never have eyewitness uh, accounts of miracles. And I'm like, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> I know a whole bunch of them. So, you know, but I said, well, let's let me just start exploring to see uh, what what we have out there. And when I was interviewing people, the, the burden of proof I was requiring was pretty high. But after a while, you begin to realize, you know, this isn't just a one off. There are enough of these. So you're not saying, okay, let me, there has to be no other possible explanation for this. I, I finally got to the place where actually, you know, if you've got credible witnesses and especially independent witnesses, it, when we did consult with Coco Moise, not to doubt one's mother-in-law, but I mean, we did check with another witness that confirmed Therese's story. I, I didn't approach the witnesses with quite the same level of skepticism after a while because there was just too much. I mean, I, I've had students share with me their own eyewitness accounts of people being raised from the dead. I've, I've not witnessed that one myself. I've witnessed, you know, like I said, storms stilling and things like that. But um, I have accounts in there from some of my doctoral students. And, um, every year, I keep, you know, as I keep getting new doctoral students, I keep getting new accounts. Hume said, you don't have any credible eyewitnesses. There was a Pew Forum survey done in 2006 of just 10 countries. And the Pentecostals and Charismatics in those 10 countries, you figure out the numbers, it's somewhere around 200 million of them claim to have witnessed or experienced divine That's healing. That's a big number. But if you, if, you don't, if you want to discount Pentecostals and Charismatics, the control group was other Christians, and somewhere around 39% of those <laughs> claimed to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. And, and I mean, you've got like a third of people in the U.S. surveyed. You've got over half of doctors surveyed in the U.S. claiming that they've witnessed miracles. Uh, and, and in context in that survey, the context was, you know, the previous question was about believing in, in miracles the way they're reported in the Bible. So, I mean, we're, and then when you look at also, uh, China was not in one of the 10 countries surveyed. It's really hard to get, you know, accurate religious statistics in China, but a report from, from the China Christian Council from around the year 2000 said that about half of all conversions in the previous 20 years to Christianity have been due to faith healing experiences. Wow. And within the house church movement, some of the stats were, were way higher than that. Now, and, and in India and, and in other places, uh, Nepal, uh, Dr. Balkrishna Sharma in Nepal told me that 80% of conversions in Nepal were due to 
healings and exorcisms. So, I mean, we're talking about just, we're talking about millions of people who weren't starting with Christian presuppositions. They were starting with presuppositions that often, often, not always, but often were antithetical to those presuppositions and actually were converted through witnessing something or through somebody close to them witnessing something that couldn't be explained in their traditional terms. And often these conversions, I mean, there were a lot of people who experienced these things, who testified about these things, but weren't converted because in some cases, the social cost of abandoning centuries of tradition, I mean, this is, I don't think Hume would have made the argument today that, you know, you just don't have enough credible eyewitnesses. If, you know, I'm not saying he would have changed his mind, but certainly, well, I shouldn't say certainly, I shouldn't speak for somebody else. I don't think he would make the same argument today because we just have too much data that we contradicts. Well, you could not make that argument with any sort of integrity today, no doubt. And you mentioned Nepal. Uh, up until this, the, some of these recent moves of God and the 80% of people converting because of healing and miracles, I mean, that was a nation that was, I think, less than 1% Christian. It, it's astounding to see major moves of God like that in places that are uh, well in the range of unreached people groups. And it's very difficult to explain it away as a skeptical sociologist or atheist or uh, any kind of skeptic uh, or whatever. So, uh, can I ask real quick? Um, uh, you, you you're married. You you met your wife in the Congo. I know you're. You tell the story of that in your book, Impossible Love. But can you kind of give us a, a, a elevator pitch, a minute or two? How how did you meet your wife? How did that come about? Yeah. Now that one is not a scholar. <laughs> right. So, no, yeah. Uh, that one in Miracles Today. And gift and giver are probably fairly readable for you know, in the background commentary. Yes. I mean, you don't uh, be at a high level of academic to, to deal with those by any means. But anyway, um, we actually met when she was an exchange student. Uh, I was doing my PhD at Duke in the New Testament and Christian origins. She was doing her PhD at University of Paris 7, as it was called back then. Um, but she came over as an exchange student because she was doing her research on uh, African-American women after Reconstruction. That was her dissertation area. So she came over to study Americans, and she got one. But it took a while uh, before we got together. Um, we liked each other, but we were both extremely shy. So, um, I mean, I'm talking with you, but I'm, I'm really, if you put me into a social situation, I'm really awkward and just shy. Uh, not as bad as it was after finishing the Acts commentary, but anyway, um, she she uh, she and I were both part of University Christian Fellowship uh, campus ministry group there, and got to know each other. Um, she was sharing Christ with people on the campus. Um, I was, and I'd share Christ with somebody. They'd say, "Oh yeah, Bedin Musunga told me the same thing." So when she went back to France to finish her PhD. We kept in touch, but we were just friends. And then she went back to Congo and got caught up mm. in the civil war. Uh, she survived that one, but then there was another civil war. And that one, she ended up as a refugee for 18 months. And I got a letter. By the time I got the letter, she was already mm. a refugee. Her town had already been burned down pretty much. And I, I didn't know she was alive or dead for 18 months because uh, the last letter that I got from her 
was saying <clears throat> that um, the soldiers were closing in on her town. Reportedly, they had orders to kill the educated people first. And by, by the time that um, I got the letter, she had fled into the forest. They'd been pushing her, her disabled father in a wheelbarrow. And any given time, somebody in the family was close to death from malaria, typhoid, or something else. Uh, they just kept ahead of the fighting as they were fleeing from one place to another. She would have to often go like five miles a day uh, to get through snake-infested swamps and fields of army ants to just get food for the family. So um, I'm glad we're together now. Amen. Well, I, I imagine going through that and her going through that has uh, been one of the wonderful contributing factors that has made you something far beyond uh, a dusty intellectual academic, the kind of a stereotype we might have of uh, seminary professors. I, you know, I know your 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 visitation to Africa has been far more extensive than mine has. I, I've spent a few weeks in Africa, not Congo, but Tanzania and uh, Kenya. And one thing that uh, beyond the hospitality of the people, and they were wonderful. There, there was a uh, there was a time when I was in Kenya where I was uh, preaching in a village, and uh, I was literally the only Mzungu, or I was the only white guy for like uh, several villages over, and treated just wonderfully. I, I love the people there, and the fruit. The fruit was astounding. Our American fruit barely has any taste compared to African fruit. Uh, it, that just kind of blew me away. The first bite I took of. Uh, pretty much every fruit I had over there. And looking at the time, I realize I could keep going on about Africa for quite some time, but this is as good a place as any to pause the interview with Dr. Keener. We have much more to discuss with him, but I don't want to make episode one too long. So what we're going to do is just briefly pause, and we will be back in a couple of days with the second part of our interview with Dr. Keener, where he discusses a mind-blowing Case verified by doctors and nurses of a patient with multiple sclerosis who was on a breathing machine uh, and with atrophied muscles and all sorts of health issues that was miraculously, radically healed just in an instant. I, I, when I was reading this story in Dr. Keener's book, I just cried. I just broke down. It was so incredible. Dr. Keener is going to tell us about that story, and we're going to talk a lot more about miracles on the next episode of the Deep Questions podcast, so please do stay tuned. Please do tell a friend about the show, and do check out our website, deepquestionspod.com. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening to episode number one. Good day to you, and Godspeed.